Thanks for joining us for the Bread of Life. We are convinced that the Bible is God's holy word, perfect and without error. Its perfection delivers what is good and beneficial for those who hear it and heed it. It is perfect for it leads us to the perfect one, the Lord Jesus. He is the bread of life. Let us seek him together through God's word. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. If you don't want to be a spiritual lightweight, you may have developed two strategies for assuring that that doesn't happen. You may try to beef up your spiritual stature by honing your intellectual and theological positions, or you may try to beef up your life by anchoring yourself into certain chosen patterns of behavior that you think will ground you in your faith. I'm going to suggest to you that both these strategies will let you down. From Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, we learn that neither doctrine nor practice in itself will give you strength. Instead, what you need is grace. There's almost always a theological debate, by the way, that takes place in the Christian community. And just so you know, it's a good thing. It's a refining thing. It drives us into God's Word. When I went to seminary, I loved it. And I especially loved my systematic theology classes. And what I really enjoyed was, after the class was over, getting together with the other students and carrying on our debates and our arguments about the various positions that were being taken up to find a theological answer to the questions that were being asked at that time. And so we debated about issues related to from the Bible and different positions on how the church was to be organized, or we debated on doctrines of the end times, or we were, well, we were always debating on the ever-popular debate of election and predestination, and that that would keep us up until the middle of the night. I enjoyed those times, and I still do. But if you think that you'll become stronger in your faith to endure the challenges of life by taking up and arguing your position on when the rapture is going to occur or on the manner in which God expresses his sovereignty in election, you're mistaken. A person can go and hunt up all the Bible verses that support his doctrine of free will or double predestination for that matter. Or he can underline all the verses that support his view of the proper chronology that will happen at the return of Jesus Christ and yet not make one stride forward in strengthening himself in heart and faith. Maybe your strategy is not along those lines. Maybe you have a more practical strategy. You prescribe to some necessary routine that you develop in your life of faith, some truth that God showed you, something that you learned that helped you, but now you've codified it into a behavior that you must follow. So you have set times of disciplined reading of your Bible, or you have strict rules on how, what you're going to wear, or you follow a strict idea of what you should do and what are the right forms for worship or the strategies on just how you should pray or the manner in which you should go about conducting the ministry and calling that God has placed upon your life or using the gifts that God's given you. And all these things can be good. They can even be correct. But if you rest in them as a test or as an answer to your fidelity and your faithfulness, if you think that they're going to give you greater strength in your commitment to Christ, you'll be deceived. You'll deceive yourself. The reality is that you can waste away under some surface pattern of commendable behavior that you've honed in your life. I remember a man coming to me years ago. He was distressed. His wife was becoming increasingly difficult to live with. She was being contrary He didn't know exactly what to do. He was beside himself. He asked if I would come and speak to her. I mistakenly did. By the way, just don't get involved in domestic issues, right? Let her come to you. But I went with him. 
I tried to speak with her graciously about the concerns that he expressed, and her response was to dismiss me and dismiss all of my words, and I still remember what she said to me. Are you suggesting that I'm not a good Christian? I'll have you know that I just completed reading my Bible in a year. You'll look all nice and conform to some truth to the naked eye and to your own eye maybe too. But God will see that the interior soul of your life is decaying, that it's hollowed out, that it's not able to stand the great test of life. God may see that you've been carried away off into some conformity, some outward action, good as it may be, commendable as it may be, but that inwardly you have not yielded yourself to the conforming rule and life of Jesus Christ. And like knowledge, unconnected to being caught up in the full grace of God, you can become puffed up. So if you're very ethical and you're very moral, but it's not connected to the grace of God, oh, you may understand the proper way to express yourself in worship. But without coming to this through the overwhelming tide of God's grace, you'll become puffed up, high-minded. And you'll actually be a spiritual lightweight. And you'll not endure. So... What will hold you true and strong and consistent? What will allow your heart to become established and your soul to be established in faith? If it's not honing your theological precision or your outward forms of worship and disciplines, where do you go to grow? What do you do and what do you latch on to? What do you come to so that when the winds of adversity roll upon you, you've got some strength, some enduring strength, so you don't get ripped out by the winds and blown away by the tide of changing fortunes? What will allow you to be anchored so you can hold in the shifting sands of the world in which you live in? Well, here's the answer. Where do you go to gain strength for your heart and your life and your soul? Well, the answer is this. Grace holds us strong. Grace makes us strong in heart and faith. In fact, grace is the only source of true stability in life. So, let me... First, define for you what we mean by grace. And then secondly, let me make an application to this. So first, just defining grace. One of the more common words that we use in the church, it's one of the more common words used within the Bible, and and it's found on our lips a lot, and oftentimes we don't really even know what we're talking about, but it means the word in the Bible, the word for grace basically means favor. God's favor. It means kindness, God's kindness. You receive a grace, but in itself it's God's favor, it's God's kindness. It's a little word with a big, wide, sweeping meaning. Alexander McLaren wonderfully gives us what I think is a wonderfully simple definition. He says that grace is the active love of God. Grace is the active love of God. Paul wrote the Christian and he said this. Paul wrote and said, you are not under law, but you're under grace. Paul also said that you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace. He pits the law and commands against grace. He pits works against grace. And there are many things that we might think about what that means, but here's the first and foremost thing that you need to understand when when the authors of the Bible take the law and they put grace on the other side. They put works and they put grace on the other side. And they put those things which work death and that thing which gives life on the other side. And what you need to know above everything else, first and foremost, is this. They're teaching us that grace does not rise out of our performance. 
Grace is not conditioned on your performance. It rises out of who God is. It rises out of God himself. God is gracious. God is active in love. He is compelled to love not because of your deeds. He is compelled to love because he's good. He's giving. He's loving. He's a blessing being. It's not driven out of him. It's not conditioned out of anything found in you. It's conditioned out of something that's in God. Infinitely, eternally in God. Grace. Grace is God himself pouring himself out upon his creation. That's how it's experienced at least. God is gracious. And God is active in love. And God's grace is the outpouring of himself upon objects of his love. Alexander McLaren, again, puts it this way. Quote, We just come to this thought that the active love of God is conditioned not by any merit on our part, bubbles up from the depths of his own infinite heart, not because of what we are, but because of what he is. It is not turned away by any sin, but continues to flood the world simply because it wells up from the infinite and changeless fountain of love found in the heart of God. End quote. That's grace. Now, God created man, and God made all things, and he set man in a garden, and God set him in that garden so that he might pour out this grace upon him. He might pour out his love upon them. He might benefit them and bless them and pour upon them unending acts of kindness. And yet man sinned. And God placed the world that man sinned in and man himself under a curse. But when God did that, God withheld the final judgment upon men. You think about it. He didn't finalize the damnation that had fallen or should have fallen upon a sinful mankind all at once. And the reason God did this was because before God ever made all of us, before God created everything, God had set up in his heart a sacrifice for our sins. He knew having given us a choice and a will that we'd sin against him and we'd falter and we'd fail. And yet God wanted to still pour out kindness upon us. God wanted to bless us. And so if you look at verses like 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, We'll tell you that we were redeemed or ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ who was foreknown or foreordained before the creation of the world. He was foreknown or foreordained as the lamb who would be this redeeming, ransoming lamb for our sins before the world was ever made. In God's heart, God had set aside Christ to be the lamb to be slain for your sins and mine. And in light of the sacrifice that God was to make for sinful men, God continued to pour favor and blessing out upon Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and the sons of Seth and the sons of men and the sons of God. Today, every person on the face of the earth experiences common favor and blessing from God, common grace and blessing from God. But if Christ had not come, if he was not coming for the sin of men, God would have been left only to condemn at once the world in unending darkness, withdrawn from his grace. But he didn't because Jesus was the lamb that was coming to suffer for our sins. And so the knowledge of that and the reality of Christ's cross has kept open a fount of blessing so that everyone on the face of the earth might still enjoy today expressions of God's outpoured love and goodness and benefit and blessing. And everyone does. Everyone experiences grace today in one way or another. It's called common grace. 
It's the common grace of life's manifold blessings. You like the food you eat? It's grace. You like what it looks like when winter turns to spring? It's grace. You love the smell of rain when it comes down and you step outside and you smell, everything smells fresh and clean? It's grace. You love and enjoy little children as they toddle about at your feet? It's grace. Common grace that God gives to all men. Favor and blessing and expressions of his love and his goodness. And it comes upon all. But it all has been left open to come upon all because Christ has died for men's sins. And God has left the fount of blessing open for all to receive. In lieu of that fact and the hope and the desire and the longing that all men might come to repentance. And when they do, they enter into a different kind of grace. It's called saving grace. So what I'm saying is the righteous man and the unrighteous man experiences grace. The Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That means that the good man and the bad man both get to enjoy good, clean rain that replenishes the earth. But when you give your life to Jesus Christ, when you believe in Him and you trust in Him, you bring to your life something more. You receive from God something more. I shouldn't say you bring it. God brings to your life something more. God brings to you not only common grace, but God brings to you saving grace. Join us in our next broadcast as we continue to consider how this grace strengthens us in a life of faith. Our ministry is brought to you by the International Evangelism and Discipleship Ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism. And your support to our radio program and that work is greatly appreciated. To learn more about that work, go to cpeonline.org. And to learn more about our local fellowship here in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.